Okay, everybody, I think we'll uh, make a start. Um, you're all very welcome to uh, this session uh, on trends and directions in criminal justice learning from the past creating the future, uh, hosted by the School of Social Work and Social Policy in Trinity and the Trinity uh, Research in Social Sciences. Um, so you're all very welcome. I think we have 46 people attending this lunchtime, which is uh, delighted to welcome all of you on behalf of um, Tris and the School of Social Work and Social Policy. Um, so my name is Owen Sullivan from the school and I'll be chairing this session. Um, and the format is that Vivian Guerin, who most of you will know, who was the uh, retired as director of the Irish Probation Service uh, uh, last year, having started work there in 1987. Uh, having previously worked with the Dublin City Council before that in his capacity as a social worker. So Vivian is going to reflect on his time uh, in the probation service um, and particularly what motivated him to uh, join the probation service in the first instance. And then we're very fortunate to have Professor Nicola Carr from the University of Nottingham uh, who's going to respond to uh, Vivian's presentation. Uh, so Vivian is going to talk for about 30-35 minutes and Nicola's going to talk then for about another 15, 20 minutes. So that'll bring us up to roughly um, half past one. And that'll give us half an hour then uh, for a Q&A session. Uh, so there is a Q&A function on Zoom. So uh, as, as Vivian and Nicola are talking, if questions arise, if you maybe just want to type them up and then we can go through them systematically at the end of the two presentations. So. Uh, so you're all very welcome. Looking forward to the session. So uh, we'll kick off with Vivian. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Owen. And I'll just try and get my screen going here. Um, okay. Okay, good afternoon. And uh, as well as welcoming and thanking all of you for, for being here today, uh, I want to thank the School of Social Work and Social Policy at Trinity College Dublin for appointing me as an adjunct assistant professor, which is a great honour. The MSW course director, Dr. Ivan Brady, and all the team have made me welcome and onboarded me, as they say nowadays, as painlessly as possible. A big thanks too to Professor Robbie Gilligan, Professor Owen O'Sullivan and Dr. Stephanie Holt, all of the school for the invitation to make this presentation and to Dr. Nicola Carr, who will be responding to my presentation. A big thank you too to Maeve McGrath, Executive Officer with Tris, and indeed all the team at Tris, for the help in navigating the technology involved and making everything run smoothly. The genesis of this event originated the best part of a year ago now, when I was approached with the idea that Trinity College would like to mark my retirement from the probation service in some way with an event probably being held in the long room, followed by glasses of wine and a chance to mingle, chat and generally catch up socially, if anyone can remember those halcyon days when we could do that. Anyway, COVID came, things got postponed and rescheduled, and we ended up where we are today, several months later, online, but otherwise none the worse for all of that. What I intend to cover today will be part personal reflection and musings and part more analytical if i can call it that consideration of trends in criminal in criminal justice 
and specifically predation-related policies and practices, past, present, and future. The personal and professional are interlinked and interwoven. I will also link these themes into wider but very much connected ones, including social work and social justice, as well as others such as drug use. I will talk about some of the key influences on my life and career to date, um, and also set out some of the developments I have seen um, and others that I would like to see happen in the future. The presentation will consider some of the key people, policies, practices, and publications that have helped shape me, the probation service, and the wider criminal justice system. Some of these points will have a political dimension to them too. In timing, they will cover the past, the present, and where I see and would like to see some areas for development. My time to skip through, let alone develop these themes is limited, so let's go. So in the context of establishing a foundation for the personal part of what I have to say and who I am, where would I start? Well, this is me with my immediate family, Paula, Carl, Nicole, and Lauren, and they collectively have been an enduring, and I mean enduring in every sense of the word, source of support and sustenance for me over the past four decades or so. And how could I summarize myself then in the context of positioning in my wider and specifically professional ecosystem? Well, it's an old saying that it is out of the mouths of babes that real truth in observation often comes. And one such babe, if I can use that term, and razor sharp analyst in my life is our nine-year-old granddaughter, Lauren. And this is Lauren. Lauren likes to draw, and in her drawings, she often provides commentary, observation, and analysis of what and who she sees around her, a kind of graphic social inquiry report, if you will. So this is how Lauren recently summarized her grandfather, Gearin. I would respond, I have to say, to this pithy analysis by stating that at least one of the statements in it is not factual from my own subjective analysis, at least. Lauren completed a more detailed graphic assessment of me earlier this year. Again, this was focused on my predilection for study. It positions herself, who she describes as the all-seeing creator, never mind expert, hovering over the rest of the family and referencing in a not unbalanced nor unreasonable way, I will concede, some of my loves other than study, which include Paula, football and basketball, and beer and ale. I do hope at some level that this list of interests is not necessarily exhaustive. Lauren has highlighted in both drawings that her subject, me, likes to study a lot, and she's not wrong. I developed this liking for study, as well as a number of my other traits in my family of origin. My parents, both of whom only had the opportunity of the most basic formal education, saw the value of education and wanted that opportunity for their children. My mother, May, in particular, believed in the voluntariness of educational options and critically in lifelong learning opportunities. I have always striven to study, to analyze and to understand and develop. I have also always had a certain energy or drive to get things done, something I also picked up from my mother, as well as my father, who was a firm believer in proactive leadership, 
in doing what you see needs to be done, no matter what level of employment or society or whatever situation in which you find yourself. Nevertheless, when I did my leaving certificate examination in, 19, in 1974, at the age of 16, I had no thought of further education. That summer, I was more interested in the World Cup held in West Germany than longer term career considerations. Very few people I knew then went on to third level education. Either way, I didn't know what I wanted to do work-wise, and so I applied for and joined the civil service as a clerical officer in the Department of Social Welfare. Over the following few years, though, I became involved in a range of local community development, youth work, drama, summer projects and sporting groups on a voluntary basis. It was during that time that I developed one of the enduring threads or areas of interest and focus and which influenced what I would do for the remainder of my life. That was the significance of community and the value of community development. My mother was a great believer in the adage that it is better to light a candle than curse the darkness. Another favorite saying of hers was, a little help is better than a lot of pity. When a neighbor's uninsured house was gutted in a terrible fire, a tragedy in which the father of that household died, May got together with a couple of her friends, they rallied the local community and led a fundraising and rebuilding initiative that resulted in the complete restoration of the burned out home. It was that kind of can-do approach and community engagement focus that has influenced so much of my approach to what I do and how I go about it. I will speak in the coming minutes about my work in and with a number of Council of Europe bodies, but my first ever visit to Strasbourg was in 1979 when I traveled there as one of three Irish representatives to take part in a European youth drama developmental workshop. Little did I know then what was to come or when I would return to that beautiful city again uh, three decades or so later. So during the course of those few post-leaving certificate years, I realized that I wanted to do this kind of community or social work on a full-time basis and not just in the evenings and at weekends. Having considered a number of possible options, I applied for and got a place on the Bachelor of Social Science degree program in UCD, which I started in autumn 1979. One of the key influences and one of the many influences I experienced while doing that degree was doing a social work practice placement in the probation service in Anne's Lane in Dublin with Patricia Smith as my practice supervisor. I knew then that after I graduated, I wanted to work in probation as a career. When I was in my final undergraduate year, Noel Clear, the Deputy Principal Probation and Welfare Officer at the time, came to UCD to tell us all that there would be probation officer jobs in the pipeline and we might consider applying. I was completely sold on probation as a career then. Two publications that really influenced me strongly around this period of my life were these two on youth justice and the so-called Whitaker Report, Review of the Penal System. One of the things that influenced me most about the former, the book on youth justice, is that it was a publication developed by academics and practitioners working together to focus on a critical area of social policy and practice and to seek to make a difference in doing so. 
Among the working group that contributed to the Youth Justice Book, which I think was published in 1981, were several people who were then or would go on to work for the Probation and Welfare Service. That was really groundbreaking in my experience. The second book, The Whitaker Report, is still the Bible of and yardstick for penal reform in Ireland and has been for the past three and a half decades. When I did graduate, I went back to work for a time in the Department of Social Welfare while I applied for social work jobs and eventually got one with the then Dublin County Council as a social worker assigned to work with travellers in the Talla area. This was a time of high tension between the traveller and settled community in Talla, as well as in other parts of the country. It was a challenging context in which to work for everyone concerned as well as doing the individual and family casework that I was mandated to do by the local authority, I was conscious of the wider community context and of the need for responses at that level. I got involved in a number of community development type initiatives in the Talla and wider Dublin area. This included youth work and summer project initiatives, as well as taking part at one point in a pro-traveller counter demonstration in Talla village. In a less dramatic vein, I got involved in the nascent Dublin Traveller Education and Development Group, led by John O'Connell and Stacia Crickley, Ronnie Fay, Martin Collins and others, and which ultimately resulted in the establishment of Pavi Point in Dublin. In the context of the intra and inter-community inter inter tensions in the area, I also organised a seminar held in Furhouse Community College that facilitated a dialogue of sorts involving people from the settled and traveller communities in Talla with a view to exploring positive ways forward together. From my earliest days in probation, I was conscious of its history. Staff tended to stay in the service and there were big personalities around and no bigger persona than that of Martin Tanzi, who was the face of the probation and welfare service as its head for something approaching for decades. As a probation officer then, you did your work, tried to keep up to date with practice developments and did enjoy a quite strong sense of collegiality with those around you. One was very conscious though, that within the justice system and in the perceived view of the Department of Justice, the probation service at that time was at best something of a benign backwater, a flaky throwback to a bygone era. The services relationship with the prison's policy division in the department and eventually with the emerging Irish prison service was at times at best suspicious, if not hostile. In the middle of all this, one source or rallying point for professional development beyond what was available in the organization itself was that of the probation officers trade union or staff association as Martin Tanzi insisted on referring to it. I joined the probation branch of what was then uh, the Union of Professional and Te Technical Civil Servants, UPTEX, which evolved through amalgamation with the local government public service unit into becoming IMPACT and more recently has transformed again to become FORSA, immediately after joining the service and soon became a staff representative, then a member of the branch executive, including serving a time as vice chair. Having little, if any, role in terms and conditions issues, such as pay and so on, which by and large were negotiated centrally, the probation branch of the union had always had more of a focus on practice issues. 
During those early years of my probation career, the branch worked hard at seeking to influence policy, including advocating for the implementation of the Whitaker Report recommendations on penal policy, lobbying management for particular training and development opportunities, and organizing seminars and position papers in relation to specific areas of work. Two examples of such branch initiatives were a position paper response to the department's 1994 policy paper, the management of offenders, a five-year plan, as well as a seminar jointly organized with the Northern Ireland branch of the UK's National Association of Probation Officers, NAPO, held in Dublin on alternatives to custody in April, 1988. I have seen and experienced many, many changes in legislation in policies and practice over my time in probation. These have included the implementation of community service, the introduction and influence of the what works research, as well as a protracted movement in and out and eventually out of the family law area through new children act and sex offender legislation in 2001, as well as the introduction a few years later of post release supervision, as well as parole and the change from the probation and welfare service to the probation service. Policy has evolved from the landmark Whitaker Report of 1985 through the highly politicized 1990s, and especially following the 1996 killings of Veronica Geeran and Detective Garda Jerry McCabe, through to more recently the 2014 Strategic Review of Penal Policy. This was followed by departmental restructuring following the Toland Report, also published in 2014. More recently still, improved structures for the development and management of criminal justice at an interagency level have been introduced, as have new standards in policies and practice for taking the voice and needs of victims of crime into account. And in the very near future, there will be new departmental and criminal justice, as well as youth justice strategies, as well as the implementation of updated approaches to policing and community safety and well-being. All of these developments have implications for the probation service as well as for the other agencies across the wider system. What has changed though is more than the laws and the strategic plans. Many of the people, including myself, have changed. The agency and interagency culture has changed beyond all recognition in my view and my experience. When I initiated even just a few years ago, what we called the co-located unit, which involved a number of prison service staff being based in probation headquarters to co-manage a number of programs, if, um, there was significant suspicion in both prisons and probation organizations. Some staff in each viewed the move as the opening shot in what would become an organizational merger or more likely a takeover as they believed. Probation staff said to me that the new unit was in effect a Trojan horse for a takeover by prisons while some in prisons saw it as the other way around, which I found amusing, as a probation takeover of them. On the plus side, many of the interagency attitudes, while still not necessarily or always perfect, are unrecognizably better than they were when I started out. There is a much improved impression of the probation service with greater trust, openness, access, and shared responsibilities. Similarly, at international level, 
I know that Ireland and specifically Irish probation and prisons organizations are seen as good examples to others. And while relatively small bodies in international terms, they're seen as ones that punch well above their weight. My move into probation management, let alone into senior leadership, was an ambition I did not have at all when I started out. My move in that direction was prompted in the first instance by the encouragement of people around me. This evolved into a realization that perhaps I could do better and contribute more by moving into management roles. The first step on that ladder was in many senses the most, dif most difficult, and it wasn't without the help and encouragement of people like my then team leader, Anthony Cotter and others that I managed to achieve that first leap. I was promoted twice by Martin Tanzi, once by Michael Donnellan when they were heads of service respectively. Subsequently, I was appointed as director of the probation service by Minister Alan Shatter in 2012. Although I had never imagined stepping into that role in my early career, I was honored to do so and to lead a marvelous team of professionals when I did. I do believe that there are some criticisms of leadership in probation generally, as in other human and social services in recent years. Some of these are around, are around so-called managerialism as it is labeled. And while I don't have time to go into it here, but hope to do elsewhere, I be believe that some of what senior leaders set out to achieve in terms of standards, professionalism, consistency, and even customer service, particularly, uh, it seems in probation, can be represented somewhat unfairly, in my view, in a way that characterizes it as oppressive and wrong. In that context, I am encouraged by the journey the probation service is currently on to develop and implement an enhanced practice framework, which is evidence-led and will, I believe, support all the st staff of the service to achieve even better outcomes. In that respect, I congratulate Mark Wilson on his recent appointment as the Director of Probation and wish Mark and all his excellent team the very best for the future. I also want to share with you, without time for comment, two of the books on leadership in every sense of that term that I have found particularly useful from the various readings that I have made on the subject over the years. From relatively early in my career, I have been conscious of the wider international dimension to our work, particularly in probation. I personally, and the probation service more widely, has participated in many international, especially European initiatives, committees, projects, and working groups. This has grown and developed over time. Closest to home, the north-south axis connection and relationship is critically important. This close relationship with Cheryl Lamont and our colleagues in the Probation Board for Northern Ireland uh, has flourished for many years, significantly predating my time as director, and we have always worked very closely together. This includes regular North-South management team meetings and collaborating on a range of practice, training and research initiatives, for example. In more recent years, we established quarterly conference call meetings with counterpart colleagues in Britain, Scotland, as well as Northern Ireland, and also involving colleagues in the Channel Islands and the Isle of Man in some gatherings in a sort of, sort of Northwest Europe fringe group of probation. Of course, the Irish Probation Service and the Probation Board for Northern Ireland were founder members of the Confederation of European Probation, the CEP, 
and Martin Tansey served as CEP president for two terms. Right now, the probation services Jerry McNally is in his second term as CEP president, which will finish in 2022. I have also served on the Council for Penological Cooperation of the Council of Europe for several years, including comp completing a two-year term as president of that working group. The probation service has participated and partnered as well in a number of bilateral research and development projects that have enhanced practice in Ireland and beyond. I believe all of this involvement on the international probation and criminal justice stage has served and continues to, to serve Ireland well, in addition to influencing the development of probation practice internationally, but especially across our colleague European jurisdictions. One ongoing North-South collaboration project for which I have a particular gras is the Irish Probation Journal, which has been produced and published jointly by the Probation Service and the Probation Board for Northern Ireland since 2004. In terms of how it started, in 2003, I was a member of the editorial committee of the Irish Social Worker Journal, published by the Irish Association of Social Workers, when I had the idea that the um, Irish probation field of practice could and should have a journal of its own. Long story short, I discussed the idea with my probation service colleague Brian Dack and then PBNI colleague Paul Doran. Between us, we made a two pronged synchronized approach to our respective heads of service who agreed to our proposal and IPJ was born. The rest, as they say, is history. The 2020 edition of the journal was actually launched earlier today. And I urge all of you, if you have any interest in this field, to access the journal on the Probation Service website. On that page, you can access not only the latest edition, but all 17 issues of the journal completely free of charge. And having seen the current edition, I compliment the current editorial committee contributors and all involved for yet another excellent production this year. I have come to appreciate the value and importance of international standards for probation and prison work, specifically those generated by the United Nations and the Council of Europe. At the same time, it can be difficult in my experience to generate interest in or even awareness of those standards. Suffice to say for now that some of the most significant standards documents have significant anniversaries this year, including the United Nations rules on community sanctions and measures known as the Tokyo Rules, the European Probation Rules, and the United Nations Rules on the Treatment of Women in Penal Sanctions, known as the Bangkok Rules. In addition, the European Prison Rules have just been revised and approved by the Council of Europe Committee of Ministers this year and need to be read, understood, and implemented widely. Anniversaries are a good time, I think, to renew or even begin our awareness of and engagement with standards documents such as these. One of the upsides of the ongoing pandemic has been the increased accessibility to international events through various online platforms. In that respect, one new international initiative that I am invo involved in and excited about, and to which I would like to draw your attention in turn, is the International Network on Criminal Justice. Developed by John Scott, Professor Rob Canton and others, and operating out of De Montfort University in Leicester, England, the network is about fostering criminal justice cooperation across international boundaries. In fact, 
demolishing boundaries in thinking, in researching, and in practice in order to achieve better outcomes. And again, I encourage you to check out this network online. So where has the role of the probation officer and probation work more generally got to by now? I believe that the probation role has changed little in terms of its foundations and overarching roles and values in many respects over the years. Aspects of how we do our work, on the other hand, has changed somewhat. Interagency cooperation is much more highly developed and goes hand in hand with joint cross-agency training and interagency staff mobility, for example. In addition to becoming a in addition, to become a probation officer in Ireland, North and South today, someone has to be a registered social worker. I believe that is a game changer for, for probation in Ireland. It also in itself raises the professionalism of probation officers as a group and contributes hugely to the status and development of their practice, as well as setting a standard for other jurisdictions to follow in terms of their probation systems. While the Irish services performance in terms of recidivism outcomes as measured and reported on by the Central Statistics Office has been positive for some years now, developments such as the implementation of the bespoke Irish offender supervision practice framework that I mentioned earlier will serve to further increase the effectiveness of probation measured against the full range of outcome measures, including reoffending. I have sometimes resisted the argument that I hear from time to time that cr crime and those who offend and specifically those with whom the probation service works have all changed drastically for the worst over time. And while that is still broadly my position, I do want to acknowledge that there have been and are some trends that we should be concerned about. For example, the increase in online offending, including so-called cybercrime is huge and a growth phenomenon that sets down a challenge to all elements of the justice system. Similarly, and for various reasons, extremist violence, domestic abuse and gender-based violence, human trafficking and exploitation, among other issues, call for our attention and appropriate responses from all of us. And finally here, I want to mention something that has recently been reawakened in my consciousness, the insidious use of drug-related intimidation and violence. One of the features all of these have in common is their under the radar nature, which can in turn reduce our focus on them and our ability to address them. All of this in turn highlights the imperative that we cherish and hold on to our human rights values and principles and doing so that we guard against another apparently rising phenomenon more widely, that of political populism and all that goes with it. My Irish, sorry, the Irish probation, the Irish offender supervision practice framework development is something, as I say, I've spoken about already today and will provide great support to probation practitioners here, as will the ongoing development of interventions uh, such as those in the area of restorative justice, which are already underway in the service. Similarly, I have referenced the huge improvements in the interagency cooperation in the Irish justice system over recent years, even though there is no room for complacency and more can be done. Nevertheless, I assume that these and other positive developments in practice will continue to grow and be rolled out. 
However, as the good civil servant that I was, I was frequently, but not always, somewhat guarded about what I said publicly on policy and related issues. I did sometimes speak out in the past, but since last December, the leash is well and truly off. The items I have listed here are my asks right now of various bodies. The list, although not long, sorry, although long enough, is not exhaustive. I could speak at length on most, if not all, of these. By listing them here, I hope my intentions or asks are probably clear. I will highlight some, however. I believe the time is long past to clarify the statutory foundation of the probation service, including its relationship with the Department of Justice as an agency. This is best done through progressing the Community Sanctions Bill. This bill, on the stocks since the general scheme was published in February 2014, will update the foundational 1907 Probation Act and put the work of the service in a modern legislative framework. The 2014 bill is a positive and uncontroversial piece of legislation and needs to be prioritized and enacted as a matter of urgency. One of the biggest areas of need in our criminal justice system is related to the needs of persons with mental illness or other relevant mental health issues in the system, many of whom could and should be diverted instead to the appropriate mental health services. This particular issue was highlighted yet again in the most recent report of the Council of Europe Committee on the Prevention of Torture in respect of their visit to Ireland last year and was in turn reported widely in the national media earlier this week. Dr. Christina Power has written on the issue as it relates to the probation population here in the latest edition of the Irish Probation Journal. I'm pleased to be able to say that this issue is also the focus of my colleagues and I on the Council for Penological Cooperation, where the Council of Europe is preparing a recommendation which will be applicable to probation and prisons organizations in relation to this issue. Other matters needing to be addressed and advanced with energy and urgency, in my view, are the implementation of the Parole Act 2019. I understand that this is underway. It will take time and planning, but its implementation as soon as possible is essential. The need to take on board the views and value of those who may be experts by experience, former service users, and specifically through the revision of the Spent Convictions Act 2016, through the Criminal Justice Rehabilitative Periods Bill 2018 presents a really positive opportunity to do this. The 2018 bill is currently being progressed and in a recent public consultation, I urged that the lawmakers be bold and take a risk in extending the positive but really quite restrictive provisions of the 2016 Act. I also urge that the current programme for government progresses again as soon as possible the programmes undertaking to establish a citizens' assembly on drug use. The subject of drug use can understandably evoke quite passionate views, and I believe that the representativeness of the citizens' assembly as a forum for reasoned and calm dialogue, bringing all views together, is a good one and very much applicable and useful to the drugs issue. Finally, I spoke a few years ago at a seminar on criminal justice inspection and oversight organized by the Department of Justice, at which I expressed the view that Ireland should have a criminal justice inspectorate, including an inspection function in respect of the probation service. The prevailing view at that time and at that event was against my own, but I reiterated here, as I still believe, in that outstanding need 
in order to further assist us all in ensuring the best possible service for our clients. Moving a bit more into the political sphere, I want to take the opportunity to reinforce at a general level, level my point about using evidence-informed approaches to what we do. In addition, let's be very wary of those who come bringing the gift of zero tolerance. Similarly, and quite specifically, I want to call for an end to the introduction of pre presumptive mandatory minimum sentences. Unfortunately, legislative propos proposals for such sentences are frequently made for what seems to me to be largely populist political reasons. And we need to bear in mind that the introduction of such sentences is explicitly contrary, is, is explicitly contrary to the strategic review of penal policy report of 2014, which is after all government policy. Both on reflection and looking forward, there are reasons to be cheerful. Policies have developed, people have changed, and there is more positivity and appetite in our justice system for openness and for taking positive risk. It is hard to describe, but in my own work and in what I see, I observe a return to a sense of the importance of community. One of the books I have read this year and which has made a significantly positive impact on my thinking is this one on Dialogue by Bill Isaacs. The book was recommended to me by Dr. Tom O'Connor, who some of you will know, originally from Ireland, but currently operating out of Oregon in the USA. In the introduction to the book, Isaacs states that the simple premise of this book is that neither the enormous challenges human beings face today, nor the wonderful promise of the future on whose threshold we seem to be poised can be reached unless human beings learn to think together in a very different way. Last December, I didn't really know what the future held for me. For me, it was like 1974 or deja vu all over again, but that was okay. I had no intention of taking on most of the list of activities you see here and in which I am now engaged. I was already a member of the International Penal and Penitentiary Foundation and the PCCP Working Group of the Council of Europe. I was also contemplating applying for a place on the Sentencing Guidelines and Information Committee. As it turned out, that came to pass several months later. Otherwise, I envisaged lots of holidays, time with my family, as well as time to catch up on leisurely pastimes such as reading, going to Shamrock Rovers and Dublin football matches, etc., etc. I did say from the get-go, however, that I looked forward to being free to take on projects or whatever interested me or whatever floated my boat and that I might not otherwise have had an opportunity to do. The other work opportunities listed here have emerged, like so many others during my life, unplanned and generally unexpected. They all represent issues of interest and energy for me and no less enthusiastically embraced for all that. So where have I come from, where am I going and what has happened along the way? In the context of the adage that it takes more than a village to raise a child, I believe my professional life has involved a community of development. I believe more than ever in the underlying values of social work and social justice. And if anything, I am more drawn to and conscious of the conceptual construction of community and the practice of community development in what I see and do. I personally buy into my parents' fundamental belief in lifelong learning. I also believe that social work in general, as well as probation work specifically, 
are at turning points and on positive platforms in their development for the future. This is in sharp focus right now due to the impact of COVID-19 on practice as much as anything else. In his excellent book, The Undoing Project, Michael Lewis refers to what he calls hindsight bias. That is a tendency to take whatever facts one has observed and make them fit neatly into a confident sounding story. Have I been doing that for the last half an hour or so? Perhaps, but Lewis in the same book refers to the idea that reality is a cloud of possibility rather than a point. And I cite that in my defense for what I have spoken about today. Finally, for my purposes, I want to cite Lewis's point that it may be in fact easier to change the world than to prove that you have done so. And in that context, to finish up, we should all do what Jill Attrell of Her Majesty's Prison and Probation Service said at a web webinar on evidence-informed practice that I attended just yesterday. That is that we should all grasp the opportunities we are presented with and we should just do the best that you can do. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Vivian, uh, for that really interesting uh, presentation, insight into your career. Um, I think we'll move straight to Nicola's response and then we take questions um, from the audience. I see a number coming in already. Um, so Nicola, uh, Nicola Carr is Associate Professor in the University of Nottingham and a member of the editorial committee of the Irish Probation Journal that Vivian was referring to and also lead editor of the journal Probation. So uh, Nicola, over to you. Thank you very much. Great, thanks, Owen. Um, is my screen showing there? Yep. Perfect. My slides. Great, thanks. Okay, thanks. That's a, a hard act to follow with Vivian, and I can't uh, pretend that my insights will be as um, informative or incisive as Lauren's, uh, but I'll try and do my best to formulate a response. So I just want to start today by saying something about Vivian and his distinguished career in the probation service. Um, Vivian joined the service in 1987 and, as he noted, eventually became its director in 2012, serving in this role up until his retirement last year. And during his period as director, Vivian led a number of key developments, including strengthening links with probation services across the island of Ireland and leading developments at the European level through his important work with the Council of Europe, the C and the CEP. Um, from my point of view, Vivian has provided a balanced voice and has been a great champion of research and evidence-based approaches within probation and the wider criminal justice system. His commitment to evidence-informed practice was seen in the Commission to develop an offender supervision framework for the probation service, which is currently being brought to fruition and which he mentioned within the probation service, and in providing leadership in initiatives such as the development of restorative justice approaches and victim services within probation. At the time that Vivian took up the reins of the probation service in 2012, or uh, had his leash put on, as he put it, uh, the Central uh, Statistics Office had published the first major recidivism uh, study based on data from 2007. And the results of this study, which followed over three and a half thousand people over four years, provided important contextual information on the effectiveness of community sanctions when compared with imprisonment. Effectiveness in this case being based on comparative reconviction data. So I want to focus my response today on um, some of the key areas that Vivian touched upon, including the role of probation and community sanctions and measures in Ireland, issues regarding visibility, the role of research and the importance of transparency, 
transparency and legitimacy. So the potential role of community sanctions as a penal lever has been demonstrated in the success of the community return scheme, which allowed some prisoners to avail of early release in exchange for undertaking community service under probation supervision. However, by any measure, I think it's true to say that probation in Ireland does retain its status as somewhat the Cinderella of the criminal justice system. And I'm sure those working in probation will be somewhat tired by the Cinderella metaphor, but nonetheless, the image of a neglected sibling toiling in the scullery while her sisters go to the ball resonates across time and place in characterizations of the position of community sanctions when compared to imprisonment. It speaks something as metaphors do, but also limits our purview. The end of the fairy tale, of course, sees Cinderella being swept out of punery and assuming her rightful place. But leaving aside the dubious gender politics, how accurate is the Cinderella metaphor in respect of Irish probation? Well, firstly, if we consider the issue of visibility, I think it's true to say that probation service has been somewhat in the background over many years of the criminal justice system in Ireland. Attention over recent years has rightly focused on conditions within prison and the need for reform therein. And while there has been some notable progress in this respect, as work such as the IPRT's annual evaluation of the progress in the penal system attests, there remain areas of concern and there's been some notable backsliding. And Vivian mentioned the report from the, um, C uh, the Council of Europe's Committee for the Prevention of Torture published this week, which documented a range of concerns, including overcrowding, excessive use of force, and particular issues regarding the treatment of prisoners with mental illness. When we think about images of punishment, the prison occupies a powerful place in the visual iconography and probation much less so. Press, press coverage about probation is generally less excitable than that of prisons, unless when a probation sanction is mischaracterized as someone getting off a prison sentence. The fact that probation is generally not viewed through the same politicized and sometimes populist lens is, in my view, a good thing. But this lack of attention also carries through to the political realm. Um, as Vivian noted, the Probation of Offenders Act 1907 remains the main legislation governing probation in Ireland and promised legislative reform in the form of the Criminal Sanctions Bill 2014 fell by the wayside when the then government's term came to an end. This legislation proposed to reform the framework for community sentences in Ireland and in some cases codifying areas of practice that have emerged in the absence of policy over many years. One such area was that of adjourned supervision, which essentially is a practice that has been made up by the courts. A place of probation without an official sanction and still subject to court oversight in the form of sometimes multiple adjournments lasting over many months. At the end of these adjournments, the court can still decide in an actual sentence or dismiss or strike a case out, in which case the person has the possible benefit of not receiving a criminal record. And Deirdre Healy and Ian O'Donnell have described this practice as a form of judicial innovation. And while there is clear merit in a system that allows a person to walk away after a period of appropriate engagement with services without a criminal record, there are also lots of potential downsides in terms of accountability, penal overreach and proportionality. And you'll see from these data, which is from the Probation Services last published annual report, that we're not talking about small numbers here. Um, 
the number of people subject to supervision during deferment of penalty constitutes almost a third of the court orders supervised by probation in 2019, and their trend in their use has been rising in recent years. The fact that there's been no ma little major legislative reform in a part of the criminal justice system that deals with significant numbers of people every year need not be an indicator that something is amiss, but the fact that the probation service garners so little political attention does support the Cinderella status proposition. This lack of visibility is also evident in the information we have about the use of community sanctions across the country. The Probation Services Annual Reports provide some useful insights which point to potential causes for concern in this area. These show, for instance, that the rates of referral to probation vary significantly across the country, ranging from less than 50 to 100 referrals per 100,000 people in Kerry, Leitrim and Mead, to the highest rates of referral, 350 per 100, uh, to 400 per 100,000 in Longford. A similar pattern is seen in relation to the distribution of probation orders, Leitrim, Donegal and Kerry have less than 20 probation orders per 100,000 residents compared to 80 to 100 per 100,000 in Dublin, Limerick and Carlow. These marked variations in patterns of use of community sanctions cannot be explained by variations in crime trends and the most plausible explanation relates to ju judicial preferences and perceived accessibility of community sanctions. And this proposition is borne out by research on the use of community service orders conducted by Kate O'Hara and published in 2017, which shows significant variation in the use of community service orders uh, compared to short prison services in different court jurisdictions. Interestingly, this research also finds that court jurisdictions close to the border with Northern Ireland seem to have a stronger preference for the use of community service over short-term imprisonment when compared to other areas. And there's some suggestion in O'Hara's research that this may be influenced by working arrangements between probation north and south, allowing for the transfer of orders between jurisdictions. The issue of perceived availability of community sentences, or at least in the probation services capacity to deliver these, is also an interesting area to explore. While there are currently over 400 staff working in the probation service across Ireland, as late as the mid-1970s, there were just 47 staff working in the service across the country. So in comparative terms, there's been a historic underinvestment in probation, and we may still be seeing the legacy of this in terms of the reach of probation services to all courts across the country, or at least in terms of probation's visibility to sentencers. However, I uh, make a note of caution to say that this hypothesis is speculative. The main point I want to make here is that there is an evident need for more research into the use of community sentences and indeed sentencing more widely, including the implementation of sentences, the experiences of community sanctions and their effects. And a researcher calling for more research will be a familiar refrain to you all. Um, but as Vivian notes, there have been a number of important studies carried out in recent years, including work by the Probation Service on the incidence of mental health concerns among the population of people subject to supervision and the training needs of staff working in this area. It is also welcome to see that the Department of Justice has recently commissioned on published research on topics including victims, interactions with the criminal justice system, confidence in criminal justice systems, spent convictions, and recidivism and policy responses. However, there is clearly much more research required across the criminal justice system, and in terms of future trends and directions, I certainly hope that this is the direction of travel.
The variation in the use of community sentences and the need for further research on this topic speaks to indications of sentencing variation based on geographical distribution or judicial preferences also raise questions about distributive justice and touch upon wider themes of transparency and legitimacy within the criminal justice system. I want to add a note of caution to what I'm saying about community sentences by noting that the increase Increasing and uptake in community sentences as a mean of penal reductionism is not necessarily a panacea. The space data produced by the Council of Europe provides insight into the degree of diversity in penal systems. The most recent data, for example, shows a wide variation in the use of imprisonment and community sanctions and measures across member states. Analysis of the trends in the use of penal measures across member states over time also show that there's been an overall expansion in the prison population and numbers of people subject to supervision in the community. And one of the reasons that greater use of community sanctions and measures have been advocated is to reduce the use of imprisonment, an aim supported by the Council of Europe, of which uh, Vivian has been leading member. However, the available evidence suggests that the expansion of the use of community sanctions and measures, particularly through the development of probation services in countries where they did not previously exist, did not have the intended effect of corresponding reductions in the use of imprisonment. There are a number of possible reasons for this net widening effect, including the fact that community sanctions and measures may have displaced other penalties, such as fines and conditional discharges for lower tariff offences, and that as increasing numbers of people are made subject to supervision, the potential pool of people who may be sent to prison for failure to comply with conditions of supervision, both when subject to a community sentence or following release from prison increases. Further still, there's evidence from some countries that the requirements placed on people subject to supervision in the community have become more burdensome, either through extensions in the periods of time that people can be made subject to supervision or and or through the addition of greater conditions such as electronic monitoring and curfews. In terms of community sanctions and what increased attention to this area, i.e. greater visibility would entail, there is a persuasive argument about the need to proceed with caution. However, there's also a need to drill down more into the content of pro and processes of supervision in the community. What are the sanctions within the criminal justice system intended to achieve and to what ends? Of course, this relates to wider concerns regarding the function of the criminal justice system and issues regarding social justice that Vivian so rightly mentions, as well as concerns regarding reducing recidivism and public safety. Vivian rightly points to the role of public dialogue in relation to this, and he's right to remind us that this public also includes people who are subject to sanctions. With regard to the question of transparency and legitimacy, as well as research, the importance of external oversight cannot be overstated. Vivian mentions his support for an expanded role for an inspectorate that would encompass probation as well as prisons, and in fact, the Community Sanctions Bill envisages such a role although it merely states the minister may appoint a person or persons to perform this function. I think there's definitely scope for an inspectorate to shine light on probation to increase visibility, but any such role would require investment in infrastructure that would, for instance, develop standards in partnership with practice and report and publish its findings regularly, something which, as the experience of prison inspections in Ireland to date, requires sustained attention and resourcing to achieve. So in summary, uh, and to respond to Vivian, I think there's um, definitely issues around 
the resourcing and development of probation in Ireland over time, there's definitely been development in that area and areas of possibility. But there are important areas to be addressed in terms of recalibration of the criminal justice system in Ireland, important areas to be addressed in terms of increasing visibility and transparency across the system. Thank you. You're on mute. Thank you, Nicola. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for that very informative presentation and uh, response to um, Vivian's uh, paper. Um, we have approximately half an hour for a Q&A um, and there are a number of questions in already. What I would propose to do is that uh, Maeve can unmute the people uh, posing questions. So rather than me reading out your question, in this case, Dave Williamson. Uh, Dave, we can unmute you. And if you want to um, ask the question directly yourself, Dave. Am I unmuted now? Yep, far yep. away. Okay. Sorry. Uh, and uh, good to see Vivian and to hear what he was saying. Um, but there were two things that uh, I suppose struck me, uh, and they're, they're slightly separate. First, uh, in terms of the criminal sanctions bill, uh, and Vivian will remember uh, when we celebrated 100 years of uh, the, uh, well, celebrated, but marked 100 years of the Probation of Offenders Act and uh, all got nice vases. And the minister talked about new legislation being just around the corner. Um, why do you think, given all of the positive messages that have been given about probation, and with the establishment of a much stronger profile within the department, uh, that that still has not progressed, even from nineteen uh, to, from twenty fourteen. Uh, that will be one question that came up to me, and the other one was more about. I, I was really struck, and I really do like the idea of community, and you referencing the importance of community. But I wonder whether what your thoughts are on whether or not probation practice as it has developed has distanced itself from community and become more uh, focused on delivering one-to-one -one services within the walls of its offices uh, without an adequate understanding of the communities which we work in and which we serve. Yeah, do you want me to respond to those two? Owen? Yeah. 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 Yeah, and first of all, thanks as well to Nicola uh, for her for her excellent response and and, and paper, which uh, piled on the the uh, thoughtfulness of, of of what needs to be considered. Uh, and thanks, Dave, for the for the questions in relation to the community sanctions bill. Um, I'm tempted to say that when when the the minister at the time in 2007 said that legislation was round the corner. Round the corner in legislative terms is seven years away because it, it was seven years after that that the, the heads of the Community Sanctions Bill were uh, were published. Um, but, you know, being serious, I, I, I think so, the reasons why, um, why that hasn't progressed any further are, are, are quite simple in, in a lot of ways. And I, I would reiterate the point I made in the presentation that the bill is is positive. I don't think it, it, there's any party, any political party would would dispute any of it. 
it's it's positive and it's uncontroversial. So I I I would stand over that. I I, I think very simply the the way the legislative process works uh, and the Department of Justice is is particularly a victim of this. Uh, because of the volume of legislation by definition that it, that it processes, that every year in its legislative program, there, there's a pile of legislation which on the face of it is all a priority, quote unquote, but in terms of actually getting done, the, the bottleneck is much smaller than the list of priorities at any one time. So I think uh, pieces of legislation like the Community Sanctions Bill, but there's oodles of others, uh, continually just falls further further down the list each year as legislation that's that's seen as uh, more urgent, uh, even if it's not necessarily any more important uh, in our view, gets bumped up, uh, you know, bumped up along the line and gets dealt with by the finite resources that are within both the department itself and the parliamentary drafting process. Uh, so and and I think the community sanctions bill is is clear evidence of that on the one hand because as I say like it's 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 not like it's controversial or it's complicated it's it's purely at some level a question of getting around to it in my view that's not a reason why it shouldn't happen and I do think that you know in uh, in this day and age there should be ways of progressing that type of legislation which needs to get done and which isn't controversial. On the second point about community, my first reaction would be that uh, I would agree wholeheartedly with the point uh, that you've made that probation uh, over, over a period of many years did become distanced from, to some extent, from, uh, from the communities that it works in. And one of the images that I have in my mind is uh, people who were in the service a lot earlier than I was describing that when the service expanded, particularly in the 1970s and even into the 1980s, and uh, you know, more staff, more, more probation officers were, were, were taken on board uh, and started to work in areas of the country that didn't have probation officers up to then. I, I often heard you know, older colleagues describing, you know, I was working out of the boot of my car as I drove around the small towns and so on. And, uh, you know, long before they, they ever had an office or if they did have the use of an office, it was very, very far away. I, I, I do think what has happened is, is partly that and it's partly more complicated than that um, in the sense that one of the other issues over the years was that because of uh, our uh, restricted resourcing for, for, for many years, and the often increasing demand from the courts, for example, uh, that probation officers felt uh, that they were working in a kind of a bunker. And that did contribute to the evolution of a referral on mentality. You know, the, the mentality that because I have so many cases to try and supervise, I just can't do what I want to do with everybody. So I refer them on. And I do think more generally in Ireland and elsewhere, there is a return to the, the very issue that you've raised Dave, I'm conscious that in the current edition, which, uh, which I recently got of the British Probation Journal, there is an article about probation hubs or community hub, hubs where probation officers work that have been you know, tried in a number of areas uh, in Britain. And I think that's, that's a really exciting development. It ties in with the points I make as well about the interagency cooperation, because I think Part of the rationale of those hubs is that they're not just for probation officers. They they have to be for other services, but they're at a community level and they're where 
services and professionals like probation officers can use and can get back closer to the community in which they work. Thanks very much, Vivian. And um, let me go to our next question, which is from Aina Rutherford. Um, can you unmute Aina? Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, far away, Aina. Firstly, Vivian and Nicola, thank you so much uh, for very uh, informative presentations. Vivian, I was a, a big fan of your, your granddaughter's art as well, which is wonderful to see. Thanks for sharing it with us. Thank you. Um, I, was, I guess my question was, I was just wondering to what degree, if any, the voice and experiences of reformed offenders and or offenders is used to influence the policy development and practices within the probation service? And if so, what has this looked like practically? Okay, thanks very much, Aina. Again, a very good question. And just thinking back to when I started in the probation service, um, you know, what I'm going to describe now wouldn't have happened at all, not remotely. But in more recent years, um, you know, people with convictions, um, whether they're currently under supervision or were in the past or, you know, have, have convictions and uh, experienced sanctions in the past, have been much more involved in what the probation service uh, does. So for example, in the development of the current uh, and, and, and previous uh, strategy statements of the probation service, focus groups would be held with various stakeholders and that would include current and ex-clients of the service. Um, you know, uh, ex-offenders have been invited and have presented at conferences, ha have and do participate in uh, in-house, in-service training of probation officers. They've also contributed to research carried out in the area. I'm even thinking at a, at a, uh, at a very basic level, uh, over recent years, uh, a number of ex-offenders uh, did a really fantastic job when the service wanted to carry out customer service research and had done so previously using staff members to administer questionnaires to uh, clients. And we found that when we, when we went out and employed uh, uh, ex-service users to do that, that they got a much higher response rate apart from anything else and were much more effective for understandable reasons than more traditional researchers. Um, and very many of the community-based organizations that the probation service funds uh, employ ex-offenders. But that brings me to the crunch, you know, which is that I think until we get to the point where ex-offenders can be employed as probation officers, which is currently impossible, uh, that, you know, that we won't really have done as much as we should be doing in, in that area. Now, I should say, uh, I'm conscious that there are moves within the Department of Justice um, uh, and the probation service and more widely currently exploring the possibility of how that can be achieved. But bottom line for me is, you know, people like me uh, can get up at conferences and talk about how important the, the uh, lived experience of people with convictions is and how we should be taking that into account until we get to a stage where we're actually opening the possibility of employment in our organizations to the very same people, we're still not there. Thank you, Vivian. Uh, Mark, Mark Wilson, you have a, a question. Um, maybe we can get Mark in. Hi, Mark, far away. 
Good. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Owen and uh, Vivian. Uh, uh, congratulations on the adjunct assistant professor appointment. Well deserved, but I'm sure you'll bring a huge amount to to uh, TCD in, in that role. Uh, I was I was looking at in, with interest at your list of uh, things that you would like progressed uh, in the department and in the preparation service. So I think our checklists uh, aren't too dissimilar, which was which was which was good to see. Uh, my my question really is to both yourself and Nicola, and it really is in respect of points that Nicola was making about the um, the understanding and use of community sanctions. So so as I step into this role and uh, and, and look to have it have impact. Uh, in in the years ahead. I mean, how do we achieve a greater understanding and support for community sanctions? Yeah, thanks, Mark, for that. Um, and briefly, I, th I think in doing that, that there are two broad constituencies that need to be influenced. One, one is the, the collection of specialist stakeholders, as I would describe them. And the second constituency is the general public. Um, so the, the, the specialist stakeholders uh, are the people who have a specific interest, potentially or in reality, in what the probation service does. And they include people like the department, politicians, uh, the judiciary, um, other government departments, and so on. Um, so in, in my view, uh, the probation service or organizations like it need to have, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a constant job. And I, I don't believe it's, it's one that's ever finally or ultimately achieved. It's an ongoing uh, process. I do think over the last number of years, a significant amount has been, has been achieved already. And I think part of that has been the change in attitude by people within the probation service itself. So when I started working in the probation service and for, for, for many years, we complained about, you know, that people don't recognize us and people should be more sympathetic to us and they should under, understand us more. And while, while that's true, as somebody once said to me, it's one of those statements that's true but useless. Uh, and we need to really move on from that. And we have a big role to play in how other people uh, perceive us. And I think uh, a, a lot of what the probation service has been doing and continues to do, like in the, in the development of the... Uh, uh, evidence-led practice framework and telling people about that is really really important I, I think people want to know among that specialist stakeholder group anyway what the probation service does and how it does it in 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 relation to the general public I do think again that's that's an ongoing process I think the big mistake that a lot of organizations traditionally made was being reactive uh, in terms of the messages that they got out so you know, responding to crises when they arose. And I really think to get the general public to understand and appreciate even a little bit about what the probation service does, it's fatal to wait until something goes wrong and be trying to explain that or, uh, you know, rationalize it. You're really on the back foot. And I do think, again, this has, has been happening and seems to continue to happen. There's a need to be proactive in uh, getting the message out. And for the general public, I think what they like to hear is people's stories. You know things like statistics for the general public, and um, so they but they do like to hear that Johnny or Mary uh, turned their lives around. This is how they this is that type of help they got from their probation officer or whatever. And I do think that, as I say, does happen a lot more now than it used to, and that's that's the right way to approach it. Thanks, Vivian. Nicola, yeah, no, it's a really interesting question, and uh, certainly there's been 
lots of attention towards, or lots, there's certainly been attention towards this area in um, looking at probation historically in England and Wales. Rod Morgan wrote an interesting piece a few years ago looking at the different audiences of probation, which is partly what Vivian is referring to there in terms of thinking about specialists, publics, families, um, communities, and, and so forth, and that the messages to would need to have, uh, you know, nuance within them. I do agree with the point about, um, you know, stories, and there's, there's also research done on people's views around sentencing that shows that when you know, there might be kind of a reaction towards somebody needs to get a particular sentence for an offence. But when you provide more context to people's lives, public generally tend to be in those kind of survey research tend to be much more understanding and, and kind of want the kind of services that something like probation provides. So I, I do agree with the point about different audiences, but also about nuance and stories. Um, I think there is a risk with probation, uh, having observed, you know, some of the, the issues in England over recent years around messaging that seeks to talk about kind of toughening and public protection and so forth, because I think that makes probation very much a hostage to fortune. Um, but I'm sure you're, you're well aware of that. But yeah, they would be my observations. Thank you, Nicola. Uh, our next question is from Anne-Marie Keane. Good afternoon, everyone. Hi, Vivian and Nicola. Good to see you both. Great. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. <laughs> um, just, I'm, I think I have to go back to see my question, Owen, so <laughs> even though I suppose I can lead into it. Um, you're very fruitful information. Thanks, Vivian and Nicola, for all the responses as well. It's been a great use of the, the, this, this slot this afternoon. I suppose I particular reference, and I pick up from the, your, your reference to the mental illness and diverting away from the criminal justice system. I really think that would be, I think it's been kind of, I suppose, debated for, for a number of years, but I'd love to see something really moving, you know, in, 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 the, in a good direction in that regard. I suppose with that, I think, on the back of that really, I suppose mental health and mental illness, it's, it's I suppose, much broader than the diagnosis and, you know, the lived experiences and the understandings and everything. I'm interested, I suppose, with that to know the views in relation to the speakers with regard, you know, that we're a lot more knowledgeable around trauma histories and the adverse childhood experiences and research in that regard. So I suppose just around, you know, the views with how we can recognise its priority within the criminal justice system and to really come to realise that, you know what I mean, around making something tangible in that regard. And then the second, it relates back to the diversion courts and, you know, diverting away from our mainstream courts in relation to homelessness with increasing referral rates over the, God, I go back to my own time in the homeless team, but they're ever increasing. And you know, having been committed in the context invariably of very difficult social and personal circumstances and criminalized, I suppose, in that regard. So I'm interested in, 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 in both of those areas, if I could get some response, thanks. Yeah, okay, thanks Anne-Marie for that. Good to talk to you. Um, uh, the, the first question you asked was in relation to mental health and mental illness, and I do think um, in the criminal justice system generally that that's one of the biggest uh, and most challenging and most urgent issues that, that the whole system uh, faces. It, I mean, it was highlighted in the prison context, uh, as Nicola and myself mentioned in relation to the CPT report on Ireland. But, you know, to a great extent, you know, the the, it's 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 reasonably 
not fully, but it's reasonably visible as an issue in the prison system because of things like the CPT visits and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it is a very serious issue there. I think in some ways it's, it's more challenging in a way because it's less visible in populations like the people under probation supervision. So I think it's really, uh, you know, positive that Dr. Christina Power, in, in terms of her article and research that she and probation colleagues are doing, uh, on the subject is really important, just even to get a handle on uh, the extent of the problem in the uh, probation population. But even as you mentioned, Anne-Marie, before that, I think there's a really huge need for people to be diverted completely at a much earlier stage where possible from the criminal justice system where they have mental illness or significant mental health issues and where that's uh, possible. Um, and I do think that, um, you know, that that should be part of the response. We shouldn't be waiting until somebody is either on probation or uh, worse again on remand in Clover Hill uh, and where they may well be identified and, you know, uh, get a very good service and so on. But really, that's that's not the answer to people uh, whose, uh, you know, mental health issues or mental illness are at the at the root of of uh, of what they've done. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you reminded me when you spoke that, you know, that, you know, probation services work with a whole variety of individuals, a lot of them very, very damaged individuals for, for, for various reasons, and a lot of them who can cause a lot of damage in turn. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm aware that the, the increase over the last number of years of referrals of people who've been homeless and so on, uh, and may have other other uh, challenges like mental health, which brings me to another point, which is that uh, I, I feel very strongly that nobody, for example, should ever be sent to prison for welfare reasons. I think it's a it's a it's a, a, a horrific reflection on any society where any judge, any court feels that the only way they're in a position to get help for the person in front of them who has committed some wrong, uh, is to, is to send them to into custody, whether that's on remand. Uh, or, or, or uh, for sentence. Um, I do think, as you said, there, there is an, an increasing aware, awareness about uh, adverse childhood experiences and people's experience of trauma in all of that. That awareness, as with awareness of anything, doesn't solve all our problems, but I do, I do think it gives us a good uh, foundation and platform for how we develop our practice. Okay, thank you. Uh, our next question is from Zinyu Dai. Um, two questions, I think. Um, yes, hi, can you hear me? Yeah, far away. My two questions have been touched on in the previous questions, but I, I just want to add that, um, you know, just from a community point of view, I think since we have such a diverse group of users in the system, how can community coming help in improving the mental well-being of all these diverse groups and such as um, mixed race or LGBTQ users within the system? Yeah, I think that's that's a really important point. And, and you reminded me there of a, a, a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to uh, visit um, a uh, probation office and probation services in Japan. And the point you make about community and the diversity of the community and the, the richness and the resource that that can bring to, to probation work, I think is one that to a certain extent we have a positive history of in Ireland, 
to some degree. And at the same time, certainly in more recent and current times, I don't think we probably use as much as we should. Um, and if, if I could just give, you know, uh, elaborate a little bit on, on the Japan uh, experience, which wh where I saw that there, there's a huge number of probation volunteers, far, far greater number of probation volunteers who assist as probation mentors, if you like, in uh, the supervision of uh, offenders uh, under probation supervision in, in, in the country. Uh, and it, it, I, I was really struck by the fact that uh, to be a volunteer probation worker in Japan is a highly respected uh, and valued role within the within the community, uh, and you know would attract people from a community point of view who have a very high standing, who have a lot of experience in uh, a wide range of whether it's you know work or business or community or voluntary activities, and uh, I. You know, I was really struck, as I say, by that and wondered, is that an area that uh, could be more developed in countries like our own? So uh, absolutely, I do think that 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 is an area where we, we could uh, further develop the involvement of our of our various communities in Ireland. As I say, I, I think we we have more of a tradition in that than in some other jurisdictions. Uh, but examples like what's done in Japan and in other countries shows that that, that more can be developed. Thank you, Vivian. We're nearly coming to an end, but we've one final question from Sharon Casey for both Nicola and Vivian. So, Sharon? Good afternoon. Uh, thank you so much for the presentation. I was very glad to be able to listen to, into it. Um, I know in my circles, we started a conversation for the first time, really, about um, people on probation and before the courts. I live very near um, a detention centre. And it was that movie, Michael, inside was really, it really struck home um, of how easily, um, sorry, it's, it's a movie, it was released a couple of years ago, it's called Michael Inside. And it, it really struck home to an awful lot of people that, uh, you know, people get being sentenced really was solving very little. Um, and I wonder, was it useful for obviously those of us who vote for certain uh, politicians or whatever based on their policies? Um, would that movie be a useful starting point for conversations over? We need to look at this. We, the legislation, to improve things needs to be enacted and for, for putting pressure on our local representatives. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. Maybe we'll go to Nicola to allow Vivian the last one. Sure, um, you can come to me, but I'm afraid I have to see Michael inside. It is on my list to watch, but um, just on the broader theme about whether kind of, you know, um, fictionalized depictions and things like that can help move on conversations. I think certainly they can, but also there's the potential, uh, you know, other side of it, things glamorizing particular things. So I, I haven't, I'm, you've prompted me to definitely go and look at that, but I do think, you know, book creative or documentaries or whatever are very useful for um, opening up conversations with people. And it's good to hear that that has done so. so. Thank you, Nicola, Vivian. 
Yeah, I, I thought I was the only person in the country who hadn't seen Michael inside. And I'm glad I'm glad I'm in good company with Nicola. My son, Carl, by the way, who's a big movie buff, uh, mentions it to me from time to time and always in the context of, I can't believe you haven't seen Michael inside. Um, from, from what I've heard about it and know about it, it sounds to me like a very good uh, uh, opportunity to show people what... Uh, what the criminal justice system getting involved in it, ending up in detention and so on is is like, as I say, I, I'm, that's a that's a secondhand view in, t in terms of what I've said uh, or, or what I've heard. I would agree with Nicola. I do think a lot of uh, what gets uh, seen in the popularized uh, TV and cinema and so on does does or can do a lot of damage in in terms of people's perceptions. But from what I from what I understand about the plot of Michael inside, uh, you know, being about a young chap who, for various circumstances and uh, happenstances, ends up uh, on the wrong side of the law and, and ends up in detention, and his experience of that sounds to me like a much more realistic portrayal uh, of um, of you know what actually happens and what can happen to. Uh, people and is all the more worthwhile for that. I, I, I think, like Nicola, it's it's back on my list to watch. Uh, okay, thank you very much, uh, Vivian, and something for yourself and Nicola to watch over the weekend. And uh, so, yes, I don't think Sharon was expecting both of you not to watch this, but nonetheless. <laughs> um, okay, that very nicely brings us to uh, two o'clock. So. Um, can I just thank uh, Vivian and Nicola very much for their very thoughtful presentations. Um, there was an earlier question from Nikki, just wondering are the presentations available? Yeah, I think Maeve is recording the session, so it should be available, Maeve, I think, on the Tris website. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure where it's going to be posted, but certainly it'll be available from tomorrow and, and they can email Tris at tcg.ie and I'll, I'll send them on the link. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, so again, Vivian, thank you very much, Nicola, and also thank uh, Maeve from Tris, who's uh, arranged all the technical side of things, and Stephanie Holt as the head of school, whose idea this really was at the beginning. Uh, so listen, thank you all very much, and enjoy your weekend. And thank you, Owen, too. Thank you. Well, thanks. Bye. Bye-bye.